1: We're broadcasting in this, our eighth year, across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, and this is the place where technology meets entertainment. It's now the second day of Hanukkah, and we're just three weeks away from Christmas. Gee, I don't know where this year's gone. Three weeks. I haven't bought anything yet. We're putting up a tree this week, though. And come next week, the Christmas parties believe in er- the beginning in earnest. We're buried in them. We've got Christmas parties every place. Everybody seems to be back to feeling good and celebrating. The only downside is that the weather's doing pretty lousy right across the country. But a few drinks will overcome that. So last week, we spoke about a 24-year-old, Miranda Wang, who was the co-founder and CEO of Bio Selection who invented a new way to break down plastic waste and prevent it from landing in the ocean. A brilliant innovation and one that's desperately needed. And this week we have an equally inspiring story about a seven-year-old YouTuber who earned $22 million this year. The kid's seven. (laughs) It's hard to believe that a seven-year-old toy reviewer is officially YouTube's highest-earning talent this year. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. And um, he's, according to Forbes, Ryan of Ryan's Toys Review, trounced Jake Paul's YouTube earnings by five hundred thousand dollars, and he brought in twenty-two million this year alone. It's estimated that Ryan since he began when he was three, now seven, has to date made over $50 million. Now, Ryan's YouTube channel, I mean, it's very simple. I watched a couple of his shows today when the figures came out, and it's very simple. It's engaging. Is it worth $22 million bucks a year? Woo, I guess it is. He puts out a new video every day and has... Total views, listen to this, total views of 25.7 billion people. And he has 17.3 million subscribers. You can actually go on and look at his subscriber numbers and they tick over at about two or three more subscribers every second. But at the end of the day, Ryan's just your average first grader with tens of millions of dollars. He's got original content on multiple streaming networks, and he's got his own range of toys. Yeah, sort of normal, typical seven-year-old stuff. Ryan's part of the unboxing world in which content creators open stuff on camera while making buckets of money. In his most popular video, which attracted more than 1.5 million views in three days, Ryan opens up a giant egg to find toys from Disney's cars and Paw Patrol, 26 billion views for a seven-year-old. About 21 million of his earnings came from advertising on his channels, and the remaining one million came from sponsored posts. In other words, Ryan's young viewer demographic is watching like crazy but I guess they don't probably have a lot of direct buying power. At, I guess they're five, six, and seven years old, but their parents do, and you can bet that kids drive their parents crazy after watching Ryan's show, demanding that their parents buy them the toys that Ryan promotes. The CEO of Bottle Rocket Management, who's an agent to many unboxers, says unboxing provides the experience and the joy of actually receiving and opening presents yourself something that you really desire Ryan's 17 million subscribers can experience this joy simply by watching him on YouTube in October Ryan signed deals with Hulu and Amazon to repackage and redistribute content from his channel And in August, he launched Ryan's World, which is a toy and apparel collection at Walmart and Target. So for all of us working stiffs that work seven days a week to build our business, there's something about a seven-year-old that's made $50 million that's both incredibly uplifting and terribly depressing at the same time. (laughs) Now, do you get my daily 30-second reading business <laughs> newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds, and every day we tackle a different subject. We cover advances in medicine and new apps and new technologies to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain. We go the full gamut. And to keep abreast of all the new developments in business and technology – so that you can be able to compete in this ever-competitive world, you really should read my newsletter. In today's newsletter, we talk about how the robo-taxi space is really heating up with autonomous taxis set to hit the roads of multiple US cities. When, 2030? No. How about this month, 2018? So to find out about that, all of that, simply go to my news my website, bobpritchard.com and enrol. It's really easy. It takes you two seconds. And if you want to cancel, that's really easy too. I know some websites, once you get on them, you can't get off them. This one's really easy. You just tick unsubscribe and you're gone. Easy peasy. Buses for Homeless is a new charity initiative in the UK, and I love this. and their mission is to reduce the number of people sleeping rough and to restore dignity to the victims of poverty. It's a great idea. The genesis of this project came two years ago when Dan Atkins discovered a man sleeping in the luggage storage compartment of a coach. This distressed him so badly that later that day, he bought a double-decker bus and began refurbishing it into a home for the man. Two years on, they're still good friends. The man is back in employment, has a roof over his head, and he's a happy little camper. How good is that for a story? Atkins began fundraising to buy and convert decommissioned buses. And as a result, Buses for Homeless are rolling out their pilot fleet in London this year and then create satellite projects in other areas. The focus at Buses for Homeless helps people to overcome the causes of homelessness, and then to equip them with personal development tools leading to soft vocational training that help get them back into employment, and in some cases to set up businesses. What a great cause. In a recent fundraiser, Atkins was joined by 80 CEOs and board-level people in a sleepout at Lord's Cricket Ground. On a freezing London night, and we all now had damn cold, that can be. And the group were all exposed to the cold, hard reality of sleeping rough. And they all realised how tough it was and realised that they needed to create a solution urgently. Now, the concepts really caught on, and buses for homeless projects now include buses for shelter. We converted buses offer of the homeless a place for a night's sleep. Buses for dining, which has mobile kitchens and dining areas serving hot meals. And buses for learning, which offers advice, support and vocational training. It's just so good. And the buses look terrific. I can't show you the buses over the, over the radio, but they look great. And Buses for Dining, it's a mobile soup kitchen providing warm meals that drives around different parts of London, providing rough sleepers with a cooked meal and a safe place to eat. Now, the smart thing about this is that Buses for Dining partner with one of of London's culinary schools in order to prepare and cook meals for those less fortunate. And as the success of the Buses for Dining becomes more popular, The aim is to get some homeless preparing and cooking the meals for others. So the homeless cook the meals for other homeless. Mm, That builds their self-esteem. I mean, it's a fantastic idea. They will learn from the students at the culinary school, so it gradually becomes more self-sufficient. And to be more sustainable financially, they supply businesses and offices with lunches and sometimes dinners on board. This is based on a one-to-one ratio, wherein for every corporate meal that they serve, they donate one meal to those less fortunate. Currently, there are a lot of buses being sold off by boroughs in London as they no longer meet the low emission zone compliance. So these disused buses are turned into shelters for the homeless, and buses for shelter is really the most important part of the campaign. Each bus can sleep twenty people per night, which means that every year one bus can provide seven thousand three hundred nights comfortable rest to rough sleepers. So, seventy three hundred nights just for one bus. Now, as you probably gathered, I reckon this is a brilliant idea. And in order to spend a night in the shelter, rough sleepers are encouraged to do something positive within the community. So you do something positive, you get a bed. And the aim is to slowly rehabilitate and integrate the homeless into the community. That means that the general population see the homeless doing something really positive in the local area and This not only helps the homeless raise their confidence and self-esteem, but it has the public praising them for their good deeds, and that reinforces their self-worth having done done something positive. All round, it is an absolutely fabulous idea. Congratulations, Dan Atkins. I don't know you. I'd love to meet you because you sound like a really cool sort of a guy. My guest after the short break is Meg Mankey, who is the senior partner at Rose Group International. She's a culture and leadership expert. And Meg's got years of experience in leading through transition. And I think you'll find this interview very interesting. Now, this is Bob Pritchard. I'm broadcasting across the world this week from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And I'll be back in just a a moment
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. You know,
1: over the last seven years, a long time, doesn't seem like that long, we've been giving you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting business people we talk about what they do the challenges that they've faced and we try to work out behind all that what it is that actually makes them tick it's extremely difficult to create a successful business today as is evidenced by the fact that less than 4 businesses in whoops less than 4 businesses in every 100 succeed So we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who have achieved success, and also from those people who are providing us the advice needed to become successful. So that's really the sole aim of this segment, to provide you with the tools to assist you to become successful. Simple, right? (laughs) My guest today is Meg Mankey who is the senior partner at Rose Group International, and Meg is a culture and leadership expert. Now, I've been in marketing for about, I don't know, 50 years or something, and I'm not quite sure what a culture and leadership expert is, but we'll find out in a second. Meg has years of experience in leading through transition. It's very hard. I've done a few transitions. Um, I was involved... Um, in several big transition and is really difficult. So from major changes in highly regulated industries to managing through a $100 million acquisition, Meg has refined skills in understanding people through change. Her studies in organizational psychology and mastery in leadership concepts ensures that your people are taken care of, which is good. I'm interested in the um, understanding people through change and moulding people. That's really interesting because I I grew up with the philosophy that the only way to change people is to change people Um, and uh, that's always stood me in good stead, so that should be interesting. Now, Meg has a passion for helping others to realise their full potential, breaking down social and personal barriers, changing their story, her innate ability to recognize opportunity in weakness and present a strategic solution is unprecedented in today's business world. She's a ranch kid from Western South Dakota, but uh, she still puts in a hard day's work on the family place. Ranch life, it's interesting because um, it's, it's really a huge number. My wife is um, a farm girl. Grew up in a farm, and uh, moving from a farm to the rigors of big business today is really quite a step. Now, ranch gave her a sticktuitiveness. Huh. I think it's a word that she's invented. Stick to it itiveness. I guess that means perseverance, Um, passion for family and outdoors, and maybe a touch of stubbornness. She's an avid runner, an advocate of well-rounded education of youth, and a major supporter of finding humor in all things. So this should be fun. Now, she partnered with Dr. Rachel Headley at the Rose Group International. They developed a critical, new, and very practical IX leadership framework which allows you to actually solve problems in your team, address generational issues, guide people through big changes and accomplish your most ambitious goals. So that's Meg. I'm not sure what any of that means, but let's see if we can find out a bit more. Hi, Meg. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard all around the world.
2: Well, lucky world today and lucky me to be visiting with you, Bob. Thanks for having me.
1: So are you sitting out there on a wood fence somewhere in a pair of galoshes and wading through mud or something?
2: You know, I'm not today, but on Sunday we are going to go work cows on the family ranch. So uh, in not too many days I will be out on the ranch. I've taken many conference calls on the back of a horse on a Saturday morning or a Friday morning. Okay. Love it.
1: Um, it's interesting because I, uh, I grew up in Australia and I, I grew up in the city. I didn't grow up in the country. And then when I left Australia and started, you know, 35 years ago or whatever it was and started mixing in the real world of business um, across three or four continents, um, it is a major difference in you you suddenly realize just how tough and dirty and whatever big business is. So how how did you find stepping up from being a farm girl or a ranch girl to um, playing in the big pond and succeeding?
2: You know, it's funny you should ask that. That was kind of the uh, impetus for me to really start working with Rachel and, and writing the book on IACS leadership my first uh, lessons in, in leadership and culture and how business works were, you know, out in the pasture. And I was, gosh, I think I was probably about five years old when my dad first sent me out on my horse by myself. It's really, I was a big deal. Mm. And uh, he said, okay, well, I'm going to go this way and you go that way. And we'll, you know, bring all these cows in and uh, I'll meet you back at the, at the gate. Well, of course, I went out and thought I had been in that pasture a hundred thousand times and knew exactly where I was going. And I popped over a couple of hills and then I felt very lost and very panicked. Um, and that was my first of many, many lessons on the ranch about, you know, accountability and, and vision. And so I find that while there are some certain, uh, certainly some differences between the ranch and the business world um, and the concrete jungle, if you will, of being in a metropolis, uh, there's still a lot I learned from ranching and can apply today in business.
1: So how did you actually come up with IX leadership and how does it, you know, there's a million leadership um, styles out there and how did, how did you come up with IX leadership and why is it different than any other style of leadership we see?
2: Sure, well, uh, the term IX stands for internal experience um and my kids tell me that experience starts with an e not an x i'm well aware of that um (laughs) my eight nine year old wanted to make sure i knew um anyway rachel and i had an opportunity to meet with quite a few people from the customer service client service um, industry Mm -hmm. and they talk a lot about cs and cx so customer service customer experience yep And they were saying, well, gosh, you know, we really focus a lot of our energy on making sure that our customers are satisfied with their experience. And we said, well, how satisfied are your employees with their experience? Because, you know, if your retention rates are really low and your productivity is really low and your employees are not engaged, chances are your customers are going to hear that in their voice. Yeah, and you're going to be in big problems. Right, right. So we developed IX leadership around the idea that you focus on the people within your organization. Then they focus on uh, the people outside of your organization. So that's how we came up with the term IX leadership. The thing that's different about IX leadership uh, is that it's not only theory. There's a lot of practical application uh, in the book that you hear and a leader can use. And it's not all focused on the individual leader um, and how they lead. It's really actually focused on how they interact with and understand their group uh, not to be confused with servant leadership because it's not just about standing from behind and, and you know helping or pushing your people forward yeah. it's really about standing in line with your people and and how do you actually leverage the energy of each person uh, and how does that energy show up so that you can be the so every person on the team can be the most effective
1: yeah, if, if you're not motivating your team and if you're not giving them the opportunity to be creative and show initiative and, and, and lead, and then you'll lose because if you, if you don't have a harmonious group and a good culture within, without, is going to be a problem. But it's it, it's interesting that you'll get, you know, going back to Apple, going back to the early days of Apple, you um, Steve Jobs could get – his staff were like lemmings. If he had have come out and said, okay, today we're all going to jump into the Grand Canyon, they all would have come out and jumped into the Grand Canyon. And yet they all thought he was a bastard. They all thought he was tough and (laughs) he was unfair and he was a real bastard and yet they – you know, you go to an Apple um, event, a launch or whatever – this is going back 20 years, I suppose. Um, it was incredible, the leadership that he um, inspired. And it's a bit like my, my son's a Googler up in um, Silicon Valley. And, you know, Google's their whole world. I mean, irrespective of the management, they, they're Googlers and they believe in it and they're passionate about it and they, they do anything for the company. What you, what you, what sort of leadership is that? How does how does that leadership work?
2: Yeah, well, I would say that that's uh, probably really close to IX leadership because um, you know it's not about it's not about giving everyone what they want or making everybody feel warm and fuzzy every day. Um, business is hard, and there there are big decisions to make, and there. There are grinding days for everyone, and there are days when the boss wants to come on and yell. And I guess if you're Steve Jobs, maybe <laughs> you're, you're afforded that opportunity to do so. But if you think back, if you ever played sports or watched a sports movie or anything about some really amazing coach, those coaches were bastards, to use your yeah. term. Uh, and those people love them, and I'll tell you exactly the reason. And this is why we focus so much on this uh, in IX leadership is. Those leaders are creating a legacy, not for themselves, for that whole group of people, for the whole team. And they are so great at helping their team understand what the values are and what the vision is to go go forward, move forward, what success looks like. And they say it in words that those people can understand. And they help each person, somehow, they help each person understand how they individually are making an impact within the organization and that's why that's why Googlers are Googlers you know to the bone and that's why Applers love Steve Jobs it's you know, I mean, look at Southwest Airlines. That's another great example. They, yeah, absolutely. their employees are loyal. Uh, that's because they have something to be loyal to. They, yeah. they want to be part of that legacy. And
1: Callahan uh, was just such a different type of thinker too. And he inspired, mm-hmm. inspired great loyalty from his, from his staff and everybody really. And he gave them the freedom to show initiative, and they did. Yeah, I and mean, they were. That's that's a great example. Um, a lot of attention um, when you hear a lot about the differences in various generations um, and how they like to work. Is there are those, are those, a lot of those uh, differences in their attitudes, are they real or are they sort of manufactured? I mean, there's some of the um, traits or so-called traits of the younger generation really as different as, as they're made out to be?
2: Mm-hmm. I love this question. Uh, my answer is uh, it's all manufactured.
0: Yeah, now, are
2: they different in a lot of different ways than generations previous? Sure. They grew up with a phone in their hand. Uh, they learned how to type well before they were in, you know, whatever, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Uh they're they're genius in a different way they think about time in a different way they think about geographic location in a different way because it's nothing now to hop on an airplane and fly across the world so i think that um you know the the millennial generation the nester generation they're kind of getting pinned with this uh bad attitude don't really care about anybody else but In reality, we're all still humans, and that's simply not true. I mean, we are a tribal being, and we love security. And so, while everybody might be walking around with their headphones on and listening to different playlists, uh, I I don't think that, you know, millennials are, are not any harder to deal with. I... When someone asked me this, especially from an older generation, um, I say, well, you know, I mean, think about if you were in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So you had, you know, pot smokers that didn't seem like they were ever doing their job or showing up to work. And then, you know, maybe you had some hairband following headbangers that maybe didn't show up to work or seemed like they were doing their job. And, and then maybe you had people that were, you know, I, I don't know, doing drugs in the bathroom. And then, I mean, every generation has a thing that, you know, a reason that they, they didn't show up, quote unquote, to work. So I think uh, there's an issue in every generation. And that's why, you know, the way we frame all of our work in IX leadership is to kind of level, be a level above all that. Who cares what everyone else's reasons are? Let's think about how we all work well together and keep moving forward with the main vision uh, of the company.
1: I could not agree with you more and it's very few people that that actually think that and you know having spent a fair bit of time um, at Google for example um, the um, you couldn't find a more dedicated initiative driven group of young people I you know you sit in the I sit in the forum, and wait for um, my son to come down and and uh, At 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, everybody looks like they're 12 years old. You know, they're all young and spotty and whatever. And they work their asses off. They obviously do a great job. And they're 100% committed. So you're right. It comes down to the culture of the company and and the quality of leadership.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really about understanding your people and what their work preferences are. Now, of course, when you talk about that and then, you know, you have some leaders that say, "Well, gosh, you know, I have the kind of business where my people actually have to show up and they have to work in the building or, you know, maybe they're in a trade, you know, or industrial field and you know people have to show up." And I get that. Uh you can give them freedom in other ways though. And so I think I think this whole uh generational differences thing is is a story that we all tell ourselves, whether your business is five people or 5,000 people, it's a story. It's just another excuse for why things don't work.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There are a number of personality tests, um, my, my Briggs disc colors personality tests, et cetera, and then there's heaps of them. There seems to be new ones all the time. And you're introducing us to culture types. So how do culture types different from the personality tests that we've all done in the past many times.
2: Yes. So the first there? there are four, four different types. There are fixers, independents, stabilizers, and organizers. And the thing that's the major difference uh, between culture types and all other personality types is that it's nothing to do with your personality. So we actually crosswalked um, all of the major Carl Young work. So Carl Young did a lot of work, and that's what the Myers-Briggs and disc and colors and all that is based on. And so we're standing on the shoulders of giants and saying, this is the next stage. We've done a great job for the last 20, 30 years in business to say, well, this is your personality type as a leader or as a, a person in an organization. and But it just doesn't really do us that much good. And so we actually said, well, what difference does it make if you're an extrovert or introvert or if you're sensing or a high D or a red? It really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, as long as you're good at your job, how do you make sure that people are actually engaged in their work? And so we created these four culture types, which crosswalks people and uh, the, the assessment shows how people um, prefer their work. So team based all the way over to self or individual work. And then on order, how much order do you really prefer in your daily work life? You know, so it goes from uh, all the way to order up to chaos, or those of us who are fixers, like myself, call that freedom.
0: Right. (laughs) Uh, People
2: who are stabilizers and organizers call that chaos. Right. So we've we've really focused our work on uh, not so much the individual, but how does the team work together? And so if we all know what each other's culture types are, and then we all know how each person and each culture type processes change differently. Then we have a lot better chance of being innovative and moving forward with the same vision. So, what are those four culture types again? Uh, the four culture types are fixer, yeah. independent, stabilizer, yeah. and organizer. Now, if you've got a
1: a team. Um, You've got a business where you run a series of teams. Is there a balance of each of those you need to have? Or, you know, what if, if you had all fixes? What happens? Does the whole thing fall apart? Well, how do you?
2: Well, you know, the interesting thing that we found in our studies is that a lot of times it's based on your industry. So we do a lot of work in um, industrial or manufacturing uh, uh, vertical. Yep. And a lot of times in manufacturing, what we'll see is that as they promote people through the ranks, um, those people are stabilizers because they were hired to do one job every day. I stamp this piece of metal or make sure this machine stamps the piece of metal or I you know, wrap this widget or whatever the thing is. And so a lot of times we see that there's a lot of stabilizers in the manufacturing world. Um, you know, other nonprofits, you might have a lot of fixers or some independents. Um, we just typed a group that was uh, a lot of fixers. And so the real magic of it is not so much that you can't be effective if you have, you know, more, more of one than another or that you have to be well-rounded. The magic is that you all know what each person pre- prefers and how they work best. And so it doesn't, it, it really, um, the results are a bit agnostic in that it, it doesn't really matter um, what you have, you can work with it no matter what.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because we keep trying to categorize, we'll put people in groups that we? we have over a period of time. I remember um, many years ago, uh, the whole thing was about. NLP, you had to have the right balance of visual people and auditory people and kinesthetic people, and everybody had to know what everybody else's um, type was so that you could communicate with them better. And how and um, is this just another extension of this, or is that or is this much more um, nuanced?
2: This is more nuanced, I would say. Um, in that it's, it's not about necessarily how, it's not only about how people take in information. Um, because we pair these culture types with, uh, the Kurtz change transition model. And yeah. so we talk a lot about the opportunity for innovation where most people say change is hard. We talk about, you know, really that's an opportunity for innovation and it's one that's missed often. Uh, by organizations because they just get in, the you know, even from the leadership level. Well, change is hard. It's going to be hard. Let's just put our head down, gut it out. Um, and so what we offer is a, a solution to think about change differently. And so the the full IX system um, recipe is what we call it in the book. So the full IX recipe altogether gives the, you know, I keep saying to people, it, it has some grit behind it. And so it gives an organization the the grit or the the something, the substance to hold on to to say, okay, we all know that we're getting through this together, um, and that there's different ways that we all process this. Uh, so it's way it's it's much deeper than um, simply, well, I, you know, I learn better if I if I hear you first.
1: Yeah. Um, change is hard. If everybody you speak to in business says change. Is hard, but that's a, that's a um, that's an attitude thing. It's a fear, and so between fixers and stabilisers, and independent and organisers, I would imagine that stabilisers and organisers are the most resistant to change, and that fixers and independents are the most embracing of change. Would that be right?
2: That would be right. You must have already snuck a copy of the book into your hot hand. I haven't, but I've been around a long time.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So what do the culture types – what culture types are most likely to be leaders? I just answered my own question I think a minute ago. But um, is there is there a culture type that 80% of leaders – are all, or are they across the board?
2: They're, they're across the board. There's a higher percentage of leaders that are fixers. Yeah. Um, Independents depend, you know, on, in start in the startup world, there's a, a pretty high percentage of independent. Um, so, you, you, you know, we all know those startup uh, folks who have some big idea and they're, you know, they're gung ho about it and super independent and uh, maybe Steve jobs would be an example, um, of an independent. So he's absolutely going to go for it. And somehow he, and, you know, he manages to motivate people along the way, but you know, he, he might be in a, in a corner or in a garage as it were working on his own until the wee hours of the morning. So there are some independent leaders, um, fixers are are most often leaders. There are, though, we do find that there are stabilizers and organizers that show up as leaders. Um, Their approach is much different. Um, I think uh, particularly in big business, uh, we are used to seeing fixers um, and maybe independents as leaders, but I think, you know, if if we had to cross-section the entire world's Uh, set of leaders. There's probably several out there that are stabilizers and organizers as well. Right.
1: I think, interestingly, most startups, 96% of startups, fail. And the reason that 96% Mm -hmm. of startups fail is because they're usually created by um, independents who have got a great idea and off they go, but they actually can't run a business because that's not the sort of personality they've got. And most um, startups fail, not because the product isn't any good, but because they don't have the um, leadership and management ability to be able to pull it off. So the independents then fall by the wayside and organisers and fixers come in and then maybe stabilises way down the line somewhere. Is it?
2: Yeah. Yep. So fixers are going to grab it and run with it. They're the best ones to go to and say, we've got this new thing coming up. Um, like you to spearhead it, right. um, or be responsible for some part of it. Cause they're going to, they're going to throw all the paperwork you just gave them and not, you know, to, to the side. And they're not going to read the email that you sent them. They're just going to say, tell me the three things that need to be done in the next 24 hours. Um, independence uh, independence, if, if you approach them correctly, so we call there's the difference between um, unguided and guided change. So we'll assume that we're guiding the change well because we're all great leaders. Um, so, you know, it, it, with the independence, they say, oh, okay, well, this is great. And you'd say, hey, I've got this one project. Man, I just don't have time for it or I don't understand it or this is really in your wheelhouse. Can you manage this for me and give me some really creative solutions? Uh organizers are really interested in the details, they really want to understand, you know, what's the order of things, how is this going to happen, who's going to be impacted when, uh, what's the final product or outcome look like, and what's the desire. Um, if that's guided well, they're pretty quick to turn. Um, uh, they're pretty quick to turn. We've got... Then, uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And then, you know, we've got stabilizers. So you're, you're absolutely right. Stabilizers take the longest amount of time. And, and the magic, though, about stabilizers and flipping them through change is that uh, they're really interested in how what everyone else is doing and how it's impacting all of the other people around them. And, you know, they're looking around saying, so this is the example I use for stabilizers. You sit down at a conference. There's a piece of paper in front of each seat. And the paper's flipped over so it's blank on the side that's facing up. Sure. Well, you know dang well that there's something on the other side of that paper. But a stabilizer would never be the first one to flip the paper over. They're going to look around, and they're going to see if everybody else flips the paper over. And if everyone else does, then they will. And so same as, you know, in, in an organization, if there's change going on, they'll probably be the last ones to come along. But once you get that first 30 percent of your population going, whether that's two people in a small organization sure. or, you know, 2,000 people in a large organization, uh, then those stayaways will hop right on board and they'll be ready to go.
1: Is change, is resistance to change and the fear that goes with that, is that a result of somebody's inherent personality or is that? A result of external pressures, worrying about their job, worrying about changes in the community. Um, there's all these new apps, and I can't keep ke- uh, keep up. I don't know how I'm going to cope. Um, is there a so is it inherent, or is it just a fear of being unable to um, compete in this world as it is today?
2: You know, I think there's, you know, in the information era, there's so much coming at us that there's a lot to be stressed out about. And so I would say that, you know, some of it is just people are really fearful of the unknown. And, and there's so much information out there about how scary the unknown can be. Um, <laughs> then it it actually compounds the issue rather than solving it. You know, they say don't ever look at for medical advice online because you'll, you'll scare yourself to death and you're not even dying. Um <laughs> I think, you know, yes, I think there might be some personal, uh, you know, historical conditioning that goes along with each person, but but what we really talk about in the change process is that, you know, the, 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 the idea of change, whether it's a big one or small one, um, it's the same every time. You know, you go through the decline, you let go of what used to be, then you go through innovation phase and work towards a new norm. Each of the culture types, though, processes that change differently, as we were just talking about. And so, you know, the real magic behind IX leadership is that um, the team learns together, and the leader, the leadership team learns how each person processes change depending on their culture type, or how each group might. And so, I think that it can be managed. I think that's the secret that really seems to be missing. Uh, for the business world, you know, it's like, oh, we, we just can't manage change. We just have to live through it. Well, no, not at all, actually. You can manage it, and you can do it together, and you can do it well. So what,
1: what are the tools and techniques that leaders are lacking today um, in order to um, successfully lead their team through change?
2: Um, well... First of all, they don't have the IX recipe, which is coming out and going to hit the entire world very soon. So lucky for them, that's coming up. Um, what's in there, though, that makes a really big difference, I would say, is the the culture types and the um, change transition model like we've been talking. But really, we the third section of the book talks a lot about what we call IX uh, basics. So it's basic leadership principles, but we've added some kind of... Uh, We've added some tactical and practical tools in there and kind of some, you know, let's not, let's, let's get through the bullshit, you know, of whatever business is saying today and say, you have to stop being scared. You have to trust your team. You have to engage in transparency. You have to believe in what you're doing Make sure accountability is very, very clear in your organization. Uh, you know, get off your heels and change your story. We we call excuses your story. So yeah. d- don't just sit back and say, "Oh gosh, this is how it is." No, nope, just change your story. It doesn't matter where you're at in an organization. Doesn't matter if it's large, small. Uh, everyone has an opportunity to be better, make their lives better, make their career better, and make make more opportunities for them and the people around them. And so. That I think is the real, uh, the real key to what leaders are missing today.
1: But it's, um, I think it's really interesting. It's, it's a new approach for me and I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Seriously, I I am because we have a hell of a lot of entrepreneurs and, and people in startup companies listening to this program around the world and, uh, if, you, if you're an entrepreneur and you're a, um, an independent and you know that to succeed, you need to now bring on organisers or fixers um, initially, then I think that would be an enormous help to you when you're out there looking for the next stage. If you're in a big company, I've been involved in a couple of major um, mergers and it is a nightmare, and because we approached it in a totally different way than obviously it was a while ago, but um, I think this makes a hell of a lot of sense. So when does, when does the book come out? How do you get it?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the book launches uh, 19 October of this year, 2018. And uh, you can get it on, you know, on that day, um, perhaps a little bit before. We're just working on the last little wiggles of the um, Amazon post. So, you, But for sure, by 19 October, you'll be able to find the book um, on Amazon. Um, and then you can either – we haven't got the audio version uh, done yet but we do have the book available. Yeah, yeah. But we do have the, the book available. Uh, we'll be out on October 19th.
1: Well, I will certainly be one getting it because I think it's a, a fantastic way to approach it. I've been through several iterations of, of leadership and and uh, categorizing people in inside teams, etc. cetera, and this, this one makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Meg, I could talk to you for ages. This is really an interesting subject. So... Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Meg Mankey, go to Rose Group International, I-N-T-L dot com. That's Rose, R-O-S-E, Group, G-R-O-U-P, I-N-T-L dot com. And you can connect with Meg directly at Meg underscore Mankey on Twitter and also on LinkedIn. So, Meg, thanks very, very much. I really appreciate it. It's a great subject. And I'd love to um, You let me know how the book goes when, it, when it's released. And I, I think that um, I'd like to talk to you again um, after release because I think, right. it's a, I think it's terrific. It's a great idea. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network right after this short break. absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the technology and entertainment capital of the world, Hollywood, California. On this program, we're always thrilled to promote brilliant ideas, and this is one of those brilliant ideas. Payless Shoe Stores, which is a very low-cost Shoe store where you go in and there's lots of shoes for twenty and thirty and thirty five and forty dollars. Well, Payless Shoe Stores made a fake luxury brand, converted a former Armani store in prestigious Santa Santa Monica into a fabulous venue with great lighting and everything, gave it the prestigious sounding name of Palisi which is pay less with an eye on the end, pay leasy, but it sounds very European and uh tricked fashion influences into spending 640 bucks for $35 shoes, a markup of 1800%. You know, if you don't know, there are influencers who get paid to promote products on, um, things like Instagram, etc., And, uh, they go along to all these things and then they go and promote it through Instagram or whatever the vehicle is and people buy them. People follow them. Well, this brilliant publicity stunt showed the only difference between payless and luxury shoes is a brand name. You know, you pay 640 bucks for a pair of shoes that you can buy for 35 bucks. It also showed that expert fashion influencers like the exclusive group that was invited, can't tell a discount sneaker from a designable collectible. They can't, like, you, they can't tell shit from Shinola. <laughs> it also shows that they're stupid, and it proves the old adage that a fool and their money are soon parted. I mean, just the slogan, anyone who's anyone wears policing, should have been a dead giveaway. Now, all Payless needs to do, all they had to do was rent a former Armani store in Santa Monica. They added dramatic lighting. They launched a fake website with an Italian sounding name. They filled up a fictional Instagram account with stock images. And boom, fashion influencers were all buzzing and they all had open checkbooks and they're going nuts. The influencers who showed up to the invite-only event bought 3000 bucks worth of shoes in the first couple of hours, and they were commenting on the fake luxury brand's sophisticated style and high-quality material. God. Payless reimbursed ignorant influencers at the end of the event, and now Payless plans to use the footage of the influencers to create a commercial. So it can be concluded that brand name is a very powerful force if the upscale sounding policy lured people into paying 18 times what they'd normally pay for shoes. It also clearly demonstrates that the people on Instagram and the like who have enough influence to prompt customers into buying new products don't have a clue what they're talking about. Imagine the embarrassment of these posers who were walking around the store, posting to Instagram, loads and loads and loads of photos with of them with all these exclusive shoes, and then finding out a little later that it was a total fake. By that time, the whole world knows that they're out there. I mean, gee, give me a break. The advertising campaign that will come out of the stunt, Created in association with ad agency DCX will help Payless take on the expensive e-commerce competitors like Allbirds or Rothy's. So it'll be interesting to see just how many people continue to believe the inane influencers sites. So if, if you're one of those people who's got a favorite influencer on Instagram and they keep popping up and saying, oh, this is wonderful, you should buy this. I wouldn't take any notice of them anymore. It's just obvious crap. Okay. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. As I say every week, Anybody can do the ordinary. Anybody can be ordinary. The world is bloody full of them. And if you're ordinary, you're always going to be boring. And you'll never know how amazing it can be if you're prepared to push the envelope. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, have a great week. Continue to be successful. Because the alternative to success
0: is failure, and that really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.